Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today on the show, we have Professor John Schaff. John is a professor of political science at Northern State University in Aberdeen, where he has taught since 2001. He teaches classes on American political thought, American political institutions, as well as politics in literature and film. Professor Schaff is a regular commentator on South Dakota politics and the author or the co-author of Age of Anxiety, Meaning, Identity, and Politics in 21st Century Literature and Film, which he co-authored with Anthony Walks. John, welcome to History 605. Thanks for having me, Ben. Great to be here. I asked you to come on the show uh, because of your chapter in a recent book, Old Trails and New Roads, published by Center for Western Studies at Augustana, uh, edited by John Locke. And and, uh, there's a lot of great chapters in here, but your chapter uh, entitled From Deadwood to Hollywood, South Dakota on Screen. I had been thinking and toying about doing a series of these podcasts about how Hollywood movies or television has represented South Dakota and South Dakota history. And I saw your chapter and I said, well, this is, this is great. This is a kind of rolling it all up into one one uh, episode with somebody who's really thought deeply about all this. So this is fantastic. I, I aim to serve. <laughs> <laughs> well, your aim is true. And I like how you have kind of broken this up. So I guess maybe just to kick this off, what what drew you, certainly with uh, co-authoring a book and so forth, this is not a passing fancy, uh, as you put a considerable amount of thought into this. Yeah. What drew you to kick this off, having taught in South Dakota for more than well, 20 years now? You know, the honest answer is, you know, the editor of the book, uh, our mutual acquaintance, John Lauk, came mm-hmm. to me. He's the editor of the book. And he said, uh, you know, we're putting this book together. Uh, you know, some, you know, different takes on South Dakota. And he said, well, you write and teach stuff on movies, right? And I said, yeah, I do. Do you think you could do something on South Dakota and movies? I said, sure, uh, I can do that. And so I started, I just put on the thinking cap and I wrote down every movie I could think of, including TV shows, which was only a couple, but we'll probably get to that. But yeah. every, every single thing on film, you might say, that, that has to do with South Dakota and then I went on social media and I said, hey, people, I've got this opportunity. You know, what have I forgotten or what have I missed? And so oh. people came up with stuff that either I went, oh, yeah, I forgot about that one or, geez, I've never even heard of that. And so I uh, kind of put together a list. And it's not a bad gig when you get paid to watch movies. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, some of these things I'd seen yeah. before, but I, I, for the for the chapter, I wanted to watch everything again. Uh, so right. I, once I sort of figured out mostly what I wanted to do, I went, sat down and watched them, though there's a couple that I, I watched that ended up just for space considerations. It, it pained my heart not to write about Hidalgo. In fact, the first draft it was in, and but then it was the chapter was too long, so it got cut out. But watched them all, and then, then I saw the patterns I think, to which you're alluding, all you know, those patterns emerged, and bada boom, bada bang, you got yourself uh, you got yourself a chapter on South Dakota and film. How many movies, uh, including the ones that you don't write about because they got cut for space right. and so forth, how many movies we're on your list to watch. Oh gosh, you put me on the spot. I don't know. And more than fifty? No, 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 no. Okay. No. I, I mean, it, it is because one of the things about South Dakota and film is, I guess, the good news, bad news is that it's not like there's a lot. I mean, it's not like this is New York. It's not like it's Los Angeles. Right. Um, it's not. No, it's not London. So it's not like there's a lot to choose from. And when we say films about South Dakota, we should probably, you know, categorize. What I put into my head is that, in some cases. South Dakota, they, they, they shoot films here because they like the exteriors. 
even though the story itself has nothing to do with South Dakota. And I know a classic example of that uh, is Starship Troopers, uh, the sci-fi film the, uh, based on uh, the Robert, the Robert Heinlein novel. So they shot that because they needed uh, an alien planet. So they went to the Badlands and shot there. But obviously that is a sci-fi movie taking place on a different planet. So it doesn't actually take place in South Dakota. Mm -hmm. So in some cases, there are movies that are shot here that e even though they don't, the setting of the, of the story is not here. And then there are other movies that are actually South Dakota stories. And so that's what I meant. But even on both those categories, it's not like it's a lot. It's, uh, again, you put me on the spot. I think I probably watched about 10 to 12. And then there are others. Uh, there's this website that perhaps you're familiar with called Wikipedia. Some of the movies that I knew were sort of tangential. You know, I could Wikipedia them without even having seen them and go, yeah, this isn't really going to, this mm -hmm. isn't going to make the cut. I'm not going to waste two hours of my life watching this movie. I know it's not, you know, it might be a scene was shot in South Dakota or someone drives through the state. It's not, it's not right. really a South Dakota story. And in some cases that cut was hard. Uh, Cause for example, in the wild, um, the, uh, the, the film about Chris McCandless uh, who ended up, this, this guy with the wanderlust right. who ended up dying in uh, in Alaska and uh, what was it John Krakauer had written the book about him so it was a best selling book they made a movie out of it and part of McCandless's story is South Dakota there's a yeah. sign I think down by Desmet right isn't that it's uh, uh, near Carthage where he worked and there's yeah. a sign on Highway 25 South yeah of yeah there's a yeah. sign there that says you know, in the wild uh, filmed in part here and so I had to think okay that's really cool. And I happen to know that In the Wild premiered at the South Dakota Film Festival in Aberdeen, South Dakota, where I'm currently sitting. And they timed it so it would air like one hour before it showed in Los Angeles. So the world premiere of In the, in the Wild was here in South Dakota. But it's not really a South Dakota story. It's so close. You know, a, a 15 minutes out of the film. I'm trying to remember now. 15 minutes maybe right. out of the film. A chunk of the film. But not. it's not really a South Dakota story. So... In the wild is alluded to, but it doesn't make the cut. But this is a long answer. You just asked how many movies did I watch, <laughs> uh, and the answer is something like like ten to ten to twelve. But it was sort of okay. this culling yeah. process. If you, you got to figure out, because I was, if you're going to make a list of any movie that that has anything to do with South Dakota, I think that list could probably be twenty to twenty five, something okay. like that. But then to get a real South Dakota story, like say, I think it's probably half of that. You raise an interesting point here at the beginning, which is influenced by uh, Joseph Bottom's recent book on the death of the novel. Uh, yeah. As I was reading the sentence, I thought, oh, I bet that footnote goes to Bottom's book. Sure and sure does. enough, yeah. you, you say today our most widely told stories are on film. And that if, if people, you know, kick around ideas of, of the movie they've just seen and making small talk with friends or, or uh, acquaintances and so forth, they talk about movies, not books. And I think that's that's eminently true. And uh, Joseph Bottom has a book out arguing that point. So the two uh, lead books that you or the lead movies that you talk about Dances with Wolves and North by Northwest. Yeah. Uh, very different movies made yeah. in very different eras yeah. for for uh, saying very different things. Dances with Wolves probably won an Oscar, right? For for sure or won several picture. Oscars. Yeah. Yeah. Best yeah. picture. It certainly won best picture. Yeah. Yeah, and then that, th those are two movies. Gonna, I, North by Northwest is alluded to because I think when people certainly when I when I started thinking South Dakota on film and I started making that list, I think yeah. the first two movies I wrote down were Dances with Wolves and North by Northwest. You know, North by Northwest doesn't get the full treatment, uh, unlike Dances with Wolves, which, which gets a full treatment in the chapter. Uh, North by Northwest doesn't because as cool as it is that you know obviously the end of the movie is at Mount Rushmore. I don't think, and if anyone sat down and watched North by Northwest, they wouldn't say it's a South Dakota uh, film. Though I, I remember the first time I was ever at Mount Rushmore was in 1989. I won't mention how old I was, but I'll just give a hint. I just graduated high school. And I remember going there. Of course, uh, Mount Rushmore has changed a lot since then. Uh, yes. They've, they've done they all, they've, all sorts of refurbishing happened after that. In 1989, it looked almost exactly like it does in North by Northwest. And that was kind of cool, but it's not really a South Dakota story. But I think it's probably, I think you're probably right that if, if when people think South Dakota on, on film, that's probably the first two movies that that come to mind. Well, and of course, uh, Dances with Wolves is a remarkable film in many ways. That's mm -hmm. certainly 
I would think uh, Costner wanted to shoot the Kevin Costner wanted to shoot the film there just for the landscapes and the panorama. That's so yep. striking. Yep. Also, the effort that he takes to have so much of the film in Lakota. It's yeah. remarkable when you think about it. I mean, Lakota yep. is a it's a language that sounds beautiful. I mean, it's just the way yep. I really love listening to it because of the just the sounds. And I've uh, gotten to a point where there's you hear a few words long enough, you uh, you can pick up the meaning and so forth. So mm-hmm. it's it's fun to listen to somebody speak it. And so the movie itself in its use, it uh, connotes a respect for the culture it's trying to explain, right? And I think yeah. that's the the heart of that is this Union soldier who goes west to see it before it's gone, kind of like mm-hmm. Catlin and other people of the era. When you teach about that movie, I assume you... you bring it up in your classes and so forth. What yep. are the students now? It's a whole generation ago. I mean, the, the movie was made and out and kind of uh, no longer famous even by the time they were born. Uh, what do yeah. they, what do they get out of the film? Uh, they, they might know it by driving on I-90 and uh, seeing the signs. Uh, yeah. See where Dance with Wolves uh, uh, was shot in some of the, uh, some of the sets. This generation, because we are now a generation and a half, I suppose, maybe uh, removed. Because I'm trying to, what year, I think the movie is 1990. 90. Yeah. Uh, so that's, uh, do math in your head, uh, 33 years ago. And so to the students, I think what they're drawn to are, are two things. One, I th- they are drawn to the Native American themes, which is not unusual for the part of the country that we live in. Uh, the, the Native American experience is sort of, you know, always there whether it's text or subtext it's it's always it's always there when you're doing south dakota history or south dakota politics you can't you can't really avoid it so i think they're they're interested in that and then precisely this um this interaction between this guy this white guy uh who's you know obviously a stand-in for sort of civilization and uh american standard white american ways Mm-hmm. going going west and uh especially his status as as uh a military figure uh which we normally think of when we were telling the native american story that the military usually is the aggressor obviously a- against the natives and, and in certainly in contemporary film not in mm-hmm. classic american western but in contemporary like anything i'd say like post 1970 the military is generally the bad guy yeah. Uh, and, and unlike like, you know, your classic John Wayne, you know, the, the, the cavalry movies, all that, where where the military is generally there are some exceptions to that. But but generally mm-hmm. the, 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 the good guy and Cosner is this guy who comes as the military guy and you see the change in him as he essentially uh, quite literally goes native. And so it's this it is this clash of civilization. So it's really fruitful to talk about. Know, what is the attraction of one civilization versus the attraction of a different civilization? Why might someone be attracted to one, not the other? And then also, why do, uh, not trying to sound too much like Samuel Huntington, why do why do civilizations clash? Which obviously they in the film they do, and, and the film is simply a reflection of history. I would very much caution people against looking to Hollywood for their history. But as a way of thinking uh, about certain historical topics, uh, Hollywood can be can be quite engaging and it's and it's fruitful and this i think is what dances with wolves helps us do is that is think about why did uh, and for lack of a better term white american civilization and native american civilization why did they clash what is the conflict there uh, and it's, yeah. it's i mean obviously part of it is power and land and all that but there's also i just think oh, differences in how people live how hard or easy is it for people with di- different ways of life to to try to live and you know, coexist peacefully with each right. other, and that's that's sort of at least part of what the film is getting at. I think certainly, yeah. I think it's at, at the heart of the film. It's doing other yeah. things, but at the heart of the film, that's that's what's going on. Yeah, I've had Francis Whitebird on the show, and he's talked about the nature of the Lakota language being so conceptually different than English. And I think he used the term English is very good for contracts. It's very specific. It can be very precise. Mm-hmm. Lakota is by nature very abstract, very indirect. You can imagine the U.S. government conducting any kind of treaty negotiation with very precise, very direct language, and the 
other uh, culture, whether it be Lakota or Ponca or Kiowa or whatever the tribe might be, as my kids would say today, not picking up what you're throwing down, right? I mean, there's yeah. just, the, <laughs> yeah. and I remember the scene from Dances with Wolves where uh, Costner is acting out that he's seen buffalo and he's trying to tell the warriors of the of the Lakota tribe where the buffalo is. And one uh, man looks at the other and says, in Lakota, his mind is gone. Yeah. <laughs> it's a wonderful yeah, phrase. I mean, he's, he's lost his mind. It's crazy. There's, uh, there's really something to that, you know, because part of what, what frames how we you know, are kind of our, how we imagine the world, how we view the world is our language. And so uh, our, our language sort of bounds us to, uh, you know, what, what, how, how do we view the world? It's one of the reasons why all those young people listening, why you study foreign languages, because learning a foreign language uh, is, is a way of inhabiting a different way of, of seeing the world. Um, and, and so this is, oh, yeah, it's partially a story of how do people with different languages, and it's, and it's not just that they have different symbols for different things, but just even the, the way you, you structure the world is is in part based on on your language and mm-hmm. when you especially when you come across you know lakota being an example but i'm even thinking of you know uh, an ancient european language like latin which has a very different grammatical structure to english y- you have to think in a different way to to get your point across and if you were born into that and if that was just sort of your your default was to think uh in that way uh, you know, in, in, as the language in your head, you probably will end up seeing the world in a slightly different way, just because, yeah, not just because the vocabulary is different, but literally like the grammar of the world is slightly different. And then when two peoples come together, yeah, trying to overcome that uh, can be tragic. But in this case, it's, you know, when you're talking about that scene from, from Dance with Wolves, it can be comic too, as yeah. uh, people try to try to make, make each other understood. And he's, you know, he's got to run around with, you know, doing, doing horns on his head, uh, yeah. trying, to, trying yeah. to describe to them uh, what he's seen because he, he can't articulate it. Well, and certainly in the Western uh, genre of movies, that clash of cultures to yep. continue with the Huntington framework is the fodder for a lot of great stories and a lot of great movies. Uh, yep. I, it occurred to me that the movie that maybe, maybe it made your list, but it didn't make the chapter was... Uh, a uh, little big man with Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. That yep. really wrestles with a lot of the same things. And I think dances with wolves probably does it better, but I, I have always been fascinated with Hoffman's portrayal of this guy who grows up in white culture, then is adapted into, I think a Cheyenne tribe and then goes back and forth throughout the rest of his life. And the movie ends up, he's a teamster with Custer at the little bighorn yep. and, He's there when Hickok gets shot. I mean, he's kind of the yeah. Forrest Gump of the Wild West. Yeah, well, <laughs> it, it, it did. It did. It was on my list, but again, it's this. Then it's the question of: Is it a South Dakota story? True. But that's yeah. when, when, even thinking of the stories that, that, especially ones that I gave full treatment to, not ones because mm-hmm. there are a handful of movies I just allude to because you know you can't talk about everything. That theme you're talking about that is in you know, in Little Big Man is really and when I, when I structure the the, the chapter the, the essay is there. And it won't surprise people that when South Dakota ends up on film in some way, shape or form, the native experience is a popular subject matter. Sure. Uh, and so, I, in fact, I'd say probably at least half, probably more than half of films that touch on South Dakota have at least some element of a native theme to it. And uh, three that I that I give an extended treatment to, we've mentioned uh, Dances with Wolves the kind of action well not yeah, kind of the thriller thunderheart yeah uh which i think is really is of all the films in in that i, that I talk about especially while well, the big hollywood movies we'll, we'll get to uh chloe Zhao movies in a second it's the most of the big hollywood productions it's the most south dakota south dakota film ever in a way and that it was actually filmed in south dakota it takes place in south dakota it's it's uh so you've got dance with wolves thunderheart and then there's an hbo film uh, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee obviously takes its title from the Dee Brown book, even though mm-hmm. it's only taking it's it's telling the the Lakota part, the South Dakota part uh, of of that story uh, in in the film. And all those those three movies all deal with this notion of clash of white European American civilization and native civilization, and then the main characters 
all having an identity crisis. In one case, yeah. you've got a white man in Kevin Cosner who is now doubting, you know, do I really want to belong to that white civilization in which I've grown up? And then in the uh, other two cases, the, the Val Kilmer character uh, in, uh, in Thunderheart and then the, 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 the Beach character in Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee are both native who, in, who, have, who have sort of left. I don't think the Val Kilmer character was ever really there, but he had a, he's, his, his mother was native. That's established quite early. And then you know, have this, this division in their soul, sort of this, this, right. which way, this which way do I go sort of thing, because they're sort of, they're, all three of these characters sort of are caught, caught between worlds. And interestingly, all, all three of them go, go the native route. None, none of the three chooses the, uh, the establishment or the uh, sort of the white establishment and in, in any of those stories. Again, very different from your classic Hollywood Western. You think of something like uh, John Wayne's Searchers, uh, which is a super interesting movie uh, dealing with, with race, but the whole idea is to get, get people back into uh-huh. white civilization uh, who have been captured by natives. In, in the case of, the, of these more contemporary movies, uh, more modern movies, it's people are leaving white civilization to join native civilization, which is you know the obverse of what what you would get in your sort of classic classic western. I guess it's historical change of of films or is oh absolutely themes. Absolutely. The it says a lot about America, doesn't it? I'm trying to think, remember if I said this in the essay. Um, I think I did. Is that you would be hard pressed? I think in fact. Little Big Man, because I think Little Big Man is 1970. Seems yes, like. uh, um, 70, 72, something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a film post-Little Big Man. Again, think of your classic Hollywood Western where it's literally it's cowboys and Indians. And, you know, it's not all the time, but like 85, 90% of the cases, the cowboys are the good guys and uh, the Indians are the bad guys. I think it's hard to find a film, like I say, post-1970, that that's the case. There was yeah. a real change in attitude about the depiction of natives. And um, it, it's hard to find, you know, post-Little Big Man, I would say, mm-hmm. a film that isn't, in essence, very respectful of the native experience, as opposed to your classic Hollywood Western, which was very hit or miss on that and mostly miss. sure very simplistic and caricature yeah, it's, and... It's, so that the savage and they've got to be it's all you know it got to kind of got this manifest destiny ideology behind it we've got to make the world safe for uh civilization the natives are in the way of civilization with their backwards ways and that's kind of your basic cowboys and indians western which obviously then does not <laughs> redound well to the uh depiction yeah. uh of of natives well, it's shifting gears here a little bit, and then you you talk about this the filmmaker Chloe Zhao. I didn't realize this uh, until I read your essay. Her three films. I, I'm familiar with No Man Land. Love that film. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to see it in the theater and seen it once since. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but these other films, my uh, songs, my brother taught me, and The Rider, 2015, yeah. 2017, yep. shot on Pine Ridge near the Badlands, yep. and. These are really fascinating. If people haven't seen these, the first time I ever heard of Chloe Zhao was with the writer for some reason. I think it had won some awards, some like independent film awards. It sort of, it made a little bit of a splash sort of on the independent film circuit, but that was her, her second movie. So it's the songs my brother taught me. And then the writer all take place on Pine Ridge or both take place on Pine Ridge. And what's, what's interesting about her is in those two films, is that they're almost entirely peopled by residents of Pine Ridge. She did not hire professional actors. So she just hired people who were there. Uh, in many cases, this is especially true of the writer, because the writer is also a quasi-biographical story uh, of the main character. It's the, 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 the guy who plays the main character, he's basically playing himself. It's, okay. it's, his, it's his story of this guy uh, who was looking for a career in bull riding or in horseback riding i should say and ends up getting getting injured and with a with a brain injury and and now he can't ride anymore the the guy who plays the main character this actually happened to him and they basically just they change his last name otherwise it's him wow his father in the movie is played by his father his sister in the movie is played by his sister uh how chloe zhao gets these 
these performances out of people who are not professional actors. They're just people from Pine Ridge uh, is is amazing. And so uh, so songs my brother taught me, it is sort of on this theme that we've been talking about, except now it's a contemporary, a very contemporary story. Not like, you no know, Dances with Wolves or Bury My Heart of a, a guy on reservation. Uh, he's got a, he's a kid, I should say. He's uh, must be getting close to high school graduation because his girlfriend is graduating high school. So he must be 17 or so. And mm-hmm. Uh, his girlfriend is going to graduate and she's going to go to Los Angeles and he wants to go to Los Angeles. On the other hand, his family is on the reservation, especially his sister, thus songs. My brother taught me his sister is, uh, who he loves his a younger sister is on. So he's got this clash between, do I leave? He's got a brother who's in prison and his brother tells him, get off res as fast as you can just leave, uh, get out of there. So he's caught between, do I stay with my people and my family or do I leave with my girlfriend? Just get out of there. Just go, go do something else. Cause there's, there's no, there's no hope here. Uh, and mm-hmm. the film I think is really good at depicting uh, in, in a way that's not condescending uh, or exploitive. There's alcoholism is in the film. Suicide is in the film. Obviously poverty is in the film. So it sort of captures that that tragic life of Pine Ridge without, I think, being exploitive uh, mm-hmm. about it. And, it. and it really captures this um, this division, this young guy's life, this uh, young man's life. And then, and then the writer in the story of this 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 horseback rider who really wants to do rodeo. That's what he wants to do with his life. But he's had this brain injury and the doctors keep telling him, you take one more fall and. And it could be it could be it for you. What I like about her films is they're very simple. And if uh, another movie that's alluded to in the chapter, but I didn't uh, Mm -hmm. didn't examine in detail is the Terrence Malick movie, Badlands. Uh, If people are familiar with Terrence Malick, of course, Badlands is his first movie. uh, It must be 76 or something like 73. It's sort of before Terrence Malick became Terrence Malick. But there is certainly these days, there's very he's one of those directors, sort of like like Tim Burton. When you're watching a Tim Burton movie, you know, you're watching it or Wes Anderson is the same way. It's got Mm -hmm. a very definitive look to it. Terrence Malick has developed a very specific look to his films. And Chloe Zhao has borrowed that. If you watch a Terrence Malick movie, it's a lot of I'm going to put a camera here. And stuff is going to happen, but there's no dialogue. And we're just going to linger there for about 30 seconds, which in movie time is forever. I mean, 30 seconds is is forever in a movie. And you're just going to sort of let stuff happen. Chloe Zhao apparently is a big admirer of Terrence Malick. You can sort of see it in her movies. They're very understated films. So both uh, Nomad, not Nomadland, uh, Songs My Brother Taught Me and rider get extensive treatment but then uh, apparently you've, you've seen nomadland a couple times it sounds like and it mm-hmm. is of course it won an academy award uh for best picture and that one takes uh, she ends up the the, the main character francis mcdormand character ends up in south dakota at one point in fact yeah she works uh, at Re- 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 reptile garden yeah Re- reptile garden ends up in it and uh are they camping the badlands remind me now i think they're camping out near she camp- the yeah she camps yeah. at the badlands campground near wall drug and she works there yeah, for a while yeah, she's right. flipping yeah, burgers right. and all that stuff. that's right they're going yeah. into they're going into wall uh, and the guy who's played by david stratum doesn't he doesn't he doesn't he flip burgers he does uh, sure yeah he's yeah. a cook there for and, a while too yeah. and uh and, and wall drug yeah so i can recommend the movie again it's that's again, one of those movies where they drive through South Dakota. Wouldn't call it a South Dakota movie, so it's alluded to. But for whatever reason, Chloe Zhao has a real affection for the state of uh, state of South Dakota, and has all, three of her first three movies were filmed in part or in total here. Though, and then then she got the big contract to make the uh, the big DC comic movie, The Eternals, uh, and uh, oh. not not filmed in South Dakota. <laughs> she made she made the big time and 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 actually got a budget for the first time. But who knows? Maybe she'll return. I'm uh, sure she will. At some point. Well, we can we can uh, we can ask that she, or hope that she does. Part of the tension in your chapter is these are people from outside of South Dakota who come here. But you mentioned a few pages in Oscar Michaud. We had a paper at our annual history conference in April. A gentleman from a university in Georgia. I can't remember which one. He's done a lot of work on Oscar Michaud, and you've mentioned the Homesteader here. It's hard to get a copy of that film. Have you seen that? Movie? I, well, because I don't think I, I think the point is it doesn't exist. You know, uh, so Oscar Michaud is what an amazing character. Right. Um, I mean, just I'd as a, his own biography. Paper. 
because uh, he's a, a a black fellow, I, bl- I believe yeah. from Chicago, yep. uh, if I'm not mistaken, who ended up homesteading. That's his first film was called The Homestead. He was it by Mitchell Chamberlain in Gregory there, County. Of being black in South Dakota is a little unusual, yep. uh, of course. And he's homesteading here. Then he he starts making movies uh, about life in in South Dakota. And part of them, because the thing is, because so he makes these, but they're silent films. It's very early mm-hmm. film. And of course, we don't back then. They they didn't preserve films. The, the the whole idea of film preservation, probably when when he's making these silent movies in you know in the nineteen twenties, you know mm-hmm. early twenties and you know, through the twenties. You're talking, you know, at least probably 40 years before anyone started thinking, um, maybe we should start preserving these things because the film decays. If you don't handle it in the right way, I mean, there's there underground vaults and was it Utah or Nevada or something there where they bury film now. Right. They take they take classic films and they bury them, you know, in these very climate controlled uh, vaults. The problem, basically, why I don't talk about Oscar Michaud much. In some ways, he'd be the founder of South Dakota film because he's lived in South Dakota, made films about South Dakota, which are uh, of interest, mm-hmm. um, but they don't exist anymore. You can go on YouTube. You can see some Oscar Michaud stuff, but it's going to be later stuff. And it's not the South Dakota stuff. Cause then he left, he left the state and right. started doing other things. So none of the stuff that he, uh, I think his first two films, certainly the first one, the homesteader uh, touch on, south dakota or when he was living in south dakota or, or dealing with his experiences but there are no copies of those films yeah left anymore so all you've got is there's you can you can you can go online you can sort of like read a narrative of, yeah. of what was in the movie but you can't actually see see the movie so it's 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 a it's a real shame yeah but just as i say at the time it was the film so the prints of those films were gone before anybody thought maybe we should be preserving these old films and so so nothing nothing exists anymore right it's just another reminder how capacious history can be we we only yep. yeah, well it, can make history about what we have we have to have it's, something it's, uh, we have well, to have a record you know, I, I, I don't have to tell the state historian this it's why you archive that's right stuff yep. uh, because once it's gone it's it's gone and so no one no one's ever going to find a copy of the homesteader again it's just it's it's gone and so no one no one can see it yeah so yeah it's a shame there it is well and you you mentioned the revenant too which of course yep. is about yep. uh one of the more famous instrument uh incidents to occur in yeah. dakota territory or in uh yeah uh and and of course it's not filmed in i Talk about disappointment. Yeah. You go to the Revenant, yeah. it's a big DiCaprio <laughs> yeah. movie, and you're yep. looking at oh, these mountains. What's going on? <laughs> Not even close. Not, Not even close. Even close. Uh, so the, the essay is divided in, basically into two parts, the Native American part, mm-hmm. and then there's another part, which is... No, there's no good way of putting it. Not Native American, right? Yeah. You know, uh, no, it just other has nothing stuff. to do with Native... Yeah. Other stuff yeah. is really what it is, of which of which Revenant is, is one of them. So yeah, so it... Uh, talk about exciting when that film came out. If anyone has ever been uh, to Lemon, South Dakota, and you go straight south mm-hmm. uh, into the national grasslands there, there is a monument there. There's, it's, I think it's like an obelisk thing. I've got a p- photo of it somewhere, actually, here in my office uh, of myself next to the Hugh Glass Monument. Okay. Up from the, the, the there's a Shade Hill Reservoir, and of yep. course the Grand River runs through there. Yep. And there's a monument where they think, uh, I guess, where he was mauled by this bear. But Hugh Glass, of course, is one of the great South Dakota stories. If people don't know this story, well, you you, you could watch the movie, but it's realized the, the movie is fictionalized version of it. Uh, and and the, the main thing you'll get is, again, if you've been to that part of South Dakota, it looks nothing like what it does <laughs> in, in the film where he's it's, it's like these uh uh it's it's forested and mountains and right. raging rivers because apparently they, they shot it both in canada and then argentina is where they ended up shooting it and it doesn't look anything as i think i say in the in the in the in the essay yeah if you're a tree in like perkins county south south dakota you're really lonely yeah um, <laughs> Uh, there were a lot of trees just, in that movie. Yeah, there are a lot of trees in that movie, but there are <laughs> there are not uh, in uh, in South Dakota in yeah. general. Uh, yeah. To say nothing of of the northeast part or northwest part of the state, where at least part of the Hugh Glass. So Hugh Glass is this uh, mountain man trapper, mm-hmm. 
and now I got to think what year it is, 1823, Yeah, he's mauled in 1823. He's, so he's out there with this group, gets attacked by a bear. He gets mauled by a bear. His companions figure he's going to die. They leave him, and uh, he crawled all the way all the way from, again, just, just south of where, if you want to get a map out, a little bit south, you can find the Shade Hill Reservoir mm-hmm. uh, just, just, south of, uh, just south of Lemon. And uh, Fort Kiowa was, is that modern-day Chamberlain, Ben? Is that right? Yes, near uh, there. Uh, yeah. Modern-day Chamberlain right on the river. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he crawled, so I, 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 it's, it's, in the, it's in the essay. I'm trying to remember how many miles that is. It's like 180, 200 miles. Right. He crawled, uh, and he, he lived. He crawls back into uh, the fort and they're all astonished. Uh, one of the people who left him, well, yeah, they're all kind of surprised uh, yeah. that he's made it. And, um, and then this is where you know, there's there's a couple, well, like um, there's Lord Grizzly, yes. uh, the is it Manfred novel, yep. which is itself a highly fictionalized, I won't put a qualifier, it's a fictionalized version of the Hugh Glass story right. uh, and, and takes liberties with it. There is some question as to whether Hugh Glass, because the, the film, uh, The Revenant, the Leonardo DiCaprio film, certainly plays up the idea of revenge yes. uh, against the guys who left him. It's not entirely clear whether historical Hugh Glass cared or whether he had ever found, you know, that's where the film ends up taking liberties and yeah. and tries to make this into a, sort of a, how could these guys do this to me and right. make it a bit of a, a, a revenge tale. Yes. But it's... it's even though the, the the true story is is amazing e- enough yes. uh, to it, and it's and I you know I can recommend uh, the film. Uh, just so you to realize that's my my caveat is always, don't get your history from Hollywood. Right. Uh, so just just be careful uh, mm-hmm. about that, and maybe just enjoy it as a story that is loosely based on on uh, real life events. Right. Um, that that actually took place in, in our state in South Dakota in the early 19th century. Yeah. Well, and it, it makes the title from Deadwood to Hollywood. You, you talk about the HBO show Deadwood, which I had, I did not realize it was that old 2004, 2006, and then came back for some episodes in 2019. Well, one one shot one. So it is uh, the only show that you can say is really a South Dakota television show. So a series is Deadwood because you've got two other options. There's Little House on the Little Prairie, House on the Prairie. Yes. which um, in the the plurality, if you if you if you read the books, um, a plurality of the action, I guess, takes place in South Dakota. Uh, I'm trying to think of, of what the seven books, at least three of them. I'm not going through my head. Are are I was totally. I guess I guess Farmer Boy, of course, is a completely different story. It's yeah. in, in New York, but uh they're they're taking place in south dakota when they made the film uh they decided to set it in walnut grove which yeah. is in minnesota which is uh really it's only one book in the series uh but for whatever reason they chose to set it in, in walnut grove also if you've ever been to walnut grove minnesota and i have um the walnut grove in the tv series looks suspiciously like the hollywood hills um uh it does not look like uh that's true southwest minnesota yes the topography Um, is not southwest minnesota that's right it 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 it, it, it's it's not minnesota but so they chose to put it in minnesota instead of south dakota even though i think south dakota has a pretty darn good claim to the lauren goes wilder stories as being south dakota stories and there there is a sci-fi movie that ran like in the 20 teens warehouse 13 this warehouse is in South Dakota, uh, out West River, but it's uh, it's a it's a TV show that's kind of like an X Files show, where there's this team that goes around the world collecting sort of supernatural artifacts and alien and artifacts that sort of thing, mm-hmm. and they put them in the warehouse. It's as much of a South Dakota show as you know X Files was a Washington D.C. show because yeah. uh, they work for the FBI. I mean, it just it's yeah. irrelevant to the to the story. So you've got Deadwood, uh, which. I can highly recommend to people, especially the first two seasons, I think are about as good a television that's ever been produced. With the caveat, if you don't like violence and if you don't like swearing and you know there's a little bit of nudity, yeah. uh, this is not your show. Uh, <laughs> because right. 
it turns uh, foul language into poetry. Uh, those of those of pe- people who have seen it know what I'm talking about. It is it's actually it's it's, it's a interesting the dialogue. It is almost Shakespearean interspersed with expletive after expletive. But it's 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 great dialogue. It's great storytelling. But it is it's very rough. It, it's it's rated R. You mm-hmm. know, I guess and TV land, it's M uh, for mature mm-hmm. uh, for sure. But it, it does. It tells with a certain degree of faithfulness uh, the story of the founding of Deadwood uh, Camp, mm-hmm. uh, and then eventually, the, you know, the, the, the city of Deadwood. Uh, so the, the TV series starts in summer of 1876, right after Battle of Little Bighorn. So it's referenced in the very first episode, okay. what has happened to Custer. And because, of course, in as we know of the history of Deadwood, these prospectors are on this land uh yeah they're violating federal law dubious legality yes very very dubious legality extremely dubious legality um so there's this anxiety about about a little bit about the natives though this is a story natives are sort of tangential to the deadwood Mm -hmm. television series they're there but it's it there but they're it's largely tangential it's mostly the story of kind of the founding of the city and because the legality of it is highly questionable again in history it's yeah they have they have no legal right to be there right but you know what what's the uh what's the legal uh phrase possession is nine tenths the law yeah uh they are there uh so and so what the story is about is how can we make this operation look legitimate and get it legitimate so we can get official recognition of our camp and that that means all the claims that people have to uh, mines and gold. Um, and how can we make this an actual legal going concern? And so the, the story has sort of has, has two anchors. On one hand, there's uh, Seth Bullock, again, mm-hmm. an historical character. You can visit his grave at the very top mm-hmm. of Mount Moriah in Deadwood. Mm-hmm. Um, you better uh, have uh, done your exercise mm-hmm. because it's very steep. Uh, getting all the way to the top to see Seth Bullock's grave. So there's the, the Seth Bullock character who's kind of the lawman and sort of the, the, the voice of uh, law and decency. And he sort of is your classic Western hero. On the other hand, the other, the other polarity is the owner of the Gem Saloon, Al Swearingen, who is a dastardly Machiavellian cutthroat criminal but they both have the same interest. We want to make this place legit. And it's a question of how do you, how do you do that? And it takes this combination of kind of Bullock's righteousness and Swearingen's uh, Machiavellianism. Uh, Machiavellianism to, to the point of, if you got to get rid of people, you got to, you got to get rid of them. As Al Swearingen says at one point, he, I'm no good with a gun. I do my work close in. Uh, he's very good with a knife. Um, but, okay. Uh, and so that's that's the conflict, and and it's it, it is it is great political drama. Okay. Uh, so a political it, science it, professor can yes get a lot out of that with up. the kids. Yeah. It, it does sort of. I will say it ran as I say it ran for three seasons. It also, by the way, was filmed in the Hollywood Hills. The difference is the Hollywood Hills. And the Black Hills do actually look quite a bit alike. And again, if you've ever been to Deadwood mm-hmm. and you watch the show, you can it really does look like the scenery of Deadwood. But it's it's shot in California, but they it looks a lot like Deadwood. But the the, the third season sort of went off the rails uh, mm-hmm. a little bit. And then the creator of the show, David Milch, sort of got another idea for a show and everything sort of fell Deadwood just sort of ended. Then it, 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 it so I can recommend the first two seasons. The third season is good. It's just not. It's nowhere near as good as the first two. Okay. Then they came back about uh, I don't know maybe five years ago or so, five six years ago, because everyone had always been. You know, it, it's this sort of this great tragedy in, in television where this this show ended without any conclusion. Oh. So Milch finally got everybody together and they made a tv movie a two-hour movie for hbo this is all on hbo for hbo that sort of tied it all these loose ends together so they they skip about 10 years 
uh, of Deadwood history. But again, if you know something about Deadwood history, so Bill Hickok is in it, but only for a while. Spoiler yeah. alert. Um, uh, yeah. I think if you know your history, you know that Bill is not long for Deadwood. Right. Um, but Calamity Jane is in it, okay. and Preacher Smith. You can find Preacher Smith's grave is also in Mount Moriah. Yep. And Al Swearingen is a, is a real person. Yep. There's and, a Chinatown in Deadwood. Do they have yes. a Chinatown there? They do? Yep. Okay. And they sure do. Mr. Wu. Excellent. Uh, yeah. Mr. Wu. In fact, especially in the second season, the, the, the Chinese kind of sub-story is actually, especially in the second season, is a very important sub-story. Okay. Uh, and the Mr. Wu, the, this character of Mr. Wu is a semi-comedic character. Okay. Because he, well, go to our, our discussion of language, he can't speak English. Okay. So he and Swearingen have to plot things while not being able to talk to each other. And the problem is, is uh, Wu knows exactly one English word, and it's one I cannot say sure. uh, on this podcast. Okay. But he says it over and over <laughs> <laughs> uh, when he's trying to get Swearingen to say this guy's a bad guy. You got to get rid of this guy. Uh-huh, okay. And he's got a very specific word for this bad okay. guy. Uh, but I can't. Uh, I can't say it on on the podcast. Well, one of um, one of the more interesting people I think in the in the era is General Crook. And General yeah. Crook does go to Deadwood, kind of in the wake of Little Bighorn, and and kind of tell the people, you know, he he has to give them a side eye too because he's no he knows they're not supposed to be there. And here he's a, you know, United States Army general. And does he play a, a even a tangential role in all of this? Or? He's in it. Um, I'm trying to think of where he comes because uh, the cavalry is coming in and out. Okay. And so Crook Crook is in it here and there. Okay. Because part, it is precisely uh, part of that negotiation of who gives us protection. Even though it's, it's a minor part of the story, uh, you know, it's still obviously conflict between settlers and the natives who's going to protect us. And then are you going to recognize us as legitimate? So crook is one of those people so they're trying to convince crook is he's, he's in and out of it. Okay. Uh, shall we say he's sort of, we, but he's, he's a minor character, but uh, certainly he might, I'm trying to think he might appear actually in all three seasons, but only, only here and there okay. does he appear. But it, it is clear you know, at, at one point, of course, the, the the U.S. military was supposed to be keeping people out of the Black Hills. Yeah, they were uh, ordered to do that. They, they, for... didn't, they didn't succeed real well. No, um, I think so. Grant kind of, by 1875, yeah. he, he more or less has to throw in the towel. Just to kind of wrapping right. it all up, what would you say you would learn about South Dakota's history by through film? What are the themes or um, the clash of cultures? Is that is that kind yeah, of one? I, can I, I think there, yeah. there are two big takeaways to get from this Uh one is, again, when people make films about or in South Dakota, it is typically for one of two reasons. And one is what we've been talking about earlier. Filmmakers like to tell native stories when they're dealing with South Dakota. And then you you very much get clash of culture type stories, whether it's explicit like Thunderheart and Dance with Wolves, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, uh, where where it's white culture and native culture clashing uh with each other or even like say in, in the chloe Zhao movie especially um uh uh songs my brother taught me it's sort of an internal clash mm-hmm. of 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 this uh young as i say this young man choosing which way to go i you know one of the, the the metaphor i draw in the essay is with in, in 18 i think it's 47 or 48 frederick Douglass gives this speech where he asks what country have I mm. as a former slave? What country have I? Uh, is this really my country? And in 1847, for Douglas, the answer is mostly n- no. This is uh, not here. This isn't my country, though. By the end of his life, the answer is for better or for worse, the United States is my country. And he sort of had made his made his peace with it mm-hmm. uh, uh, when he when he says that we are America's and Lincoln's stepchildren. Uh, and that speech at the dedication, the Emancipation Monument in, in 1870. And well, coincidentally, 1876, yeah. uh, he says, we are stepchildren, which for him, he, he's basically saying good enough. Mm-hmm. The, the, the native, I think, still you know, ha- asked this question too: uh, what country have I? And I think it's a really hard question to answer because the, the native conundrum is sort of having a foot in both worlds. And, and, and where are you? And I think that the, the Chloe, Chloe Zhao movies, the, the, both both the writer and especially the songs my brother really touch on that. 
The other reason, again, the big take, so yeah, clash, this cultural clash is big takeaway one. Two is, I think, it really, I think it's just the geography of our state, which I really isn't, isn't history, but it's, yeah. uh, well, a lot of our history is geography, yeah. uh, which, you know, in, in the, the, the book we're drawing from, uh, old trails and, and new roads. I mean, there's chapters on geography. Geography is a big part mm-hmm. of South Dakota. Just the visual st- stunningness of our state. Now, one, one film that, that we haven't mentioned that I want to make sure we mention is uh, uh, a contemporary South Dakota filmmaker, Andrew Keitlinger. Oh, right. Um, who's, who's from Pierre. Yeah. And he made a movie. Again, made a bit of a splash on, on the indie scene uh, about, five, again, about five years ago now. Um, called tater tot and Patton, and it's filmed in and around pier fort pier area and what i like about it is we talk about the revenant and how visually it has nothing to do uh with the state of south dakota whatever the story is if if people want to know what's what most of south dakota looks like because when people think of south dakota they probably think of the black hills Mm -hmm. but that is not most of south dakota most of south dakota is sort of prairie flat treeless uh and if they you know, are rolling hills if there are hills you know they've got kind of rolling hills and buttes yeah and i think keitlinger really captures that in this very intimate family story uh taking place uh on a ranch you know just outside of pier okay. and but it's i think the visuals of south dakota which is why i, I think people filmmakers will probably keep coming back to south dakota because it's it's visually so stunning and interesting uh, and we've, uh, our, our, our state, it, darn it, is pretty to look at. Yeah, um, it is. so, uh, so in that sense, it is cinematic and, and it really, that's why Kevin Cosner shot his movie here, even though the movie doesn't really take place, Dance with Wolves doesn't take place in South Dakota, but it sure looks like South Dakota and it's, it's a beautiful film. Yeah. Well, John, thanks a lot for, uh, spending some time with us in your summer. You bet. Summer uh, pace, and uh, we ap- yep. appreciate it. Again, the the book is Old Trails and New Roads: uh, The South Dakota in South Dakota History, edited by John Locke, with the chapter that we've been discussing with John Schaff from Deadwood to Hollywood. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting. And most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.